You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. Our fences were mostly patchworks made up of hubcaps, sheet metal, plywood, car parts, bed springs, hammered barrel lids, plastic crates, bricks, goatskins, crushed cans, assorted broken furniture. And in spite of Theophilus's constant repairs, those fences didn't do much but lean away from the wind. Although the cows mostly stayed on the farm, any and all predators, jackals, baboons, hyenas, Kalahari foxes, our friends the dwarfed hedgehogs, leopards, carnivorous bush rabbits, warthogs, neighboring thieving farmhands, all were absolutely welcome at Goas. Our saddest fences, though, were the ones that didn't even try. Those sections of fence line where the land dipped into dry tributaries and the fence didn't follow suit were called flying fences, the most useless man-made things in the universe. A bit of cordoned-off void, winging across nothing, the only true mascot of our farm. This is Jen Ramage for KUSP. Today on the program, I'm joined by San Francisco author and Guggenheim Fellowship recipient, Peter Orner. His short story collection, Esser Stories, received the Rome Prize from the American Academy of Arts and Letters and the Goldberg Prize from the National Foundation for Jewish Culture. It was also a New York Times notable book, a Hemingway Foundation Penn Award finalist, and a book sense pick. The Second Coming of Malava Chicago is his first novel. And as Thomas Pynchon made clear in his first novel, any writer who wants to criticize colonialism should look into some Namibian real estate. In his novel, Peter Orner does just this. He takes us to Namibia in the early 1990s, just after the country has won independence. He paints this rather oppressive landscape of isolation at an all-boys Catholic school, where, quote, the sand, trees, bushes, even the cows were all the color of plaster. Though surrendered by this desert, this poverty and relentless sun, the people of Goas on this farm weave a vivid tapestry of life through their stories, songs, and most of all, their relationships. Welcome to the program, Peter Orner. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So tell us about our narrator here for most of this story, Larry uh, Kaplansky. He's a young volunteer from Cincinnati, Ohio, with the best of intentions. He decides to go to this little farm and to teach English. Right. Um, Kaplansky, uh, um, he arrives at this farm in Namibia, um, having really no idea where he is. Namibia at that time had just become independent in, in 1989. And so the book is set basically in, in 91, 92-ish. And he, he arrives there pretty much befuddled because he's there to teach English, but he has no experience to do that. So um, he arrives and then is thrust into a classroom. And those of you teachers out there know it's very difficult even when you have lots of training. But when you have none, it's, it's um, suicide. <laughs> Well, and in fact, he's greeted um, by the principal who says, well, it's lovely that you came here to try and help us in this desolate landscape, but it would have been nice if you just thrown some cash in an envelope and mailed it to us. <laughs> right. Um, the principal uh, the principal's a realist and uh, is, is a straight talker and, and greets him with, um, with the truth of the situation, which is that, um, you know, his arriving in and of itself does not particularly help anybody. 
So Larry quickly meets and becomes um, enchanted by this elusive character who is a former guerrilla fighter and also a young mother and a teacher at the school, uh, the title character, mm-hmm. Maleva. Tell us about the kinds of fantasies and projections, all of these kind of um, strange characters, these teachers who are alone in life, uh, project upon this woman and who she really is. We don't honestly know through much of the novel. That's true. Um, Namibia, in in the time that the book is set, is has just come out of um, of of many years of war, more than thirty years of of war, and 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 hundreds of years of colonialism. So, you're at a time of great transition, um, and and Mavala arrives uh, at a time having fought in the war against South Africa for independence unlike other people at the farm. And it's an all-boys school with mostly men teachers, and, and unfortunately for them, a lot, a lot of the teachers did not, in fact, fight. And not everybody fights in a, in a civil war, in a, in, a, in a war for independence. So, but, but Mavala has that distinction, so immediately she's, um, she's looked upon differently. She's a woman, and she's a guerrilla fighter, and those two, those two were quite a combination at this small place. Well, let's talk about the political context of the story. Uh, you don't wield a heavy hand here in talking about colonialism nor mm-hmm. apartheid, but clearly the Namibians were fighting against the South Africans who were much better armed and very savvy. Um, tell us why you set the story at this time, and did this have something to do with your own relationship to this small country, a country that is very sparsely populated and quite isolated in terms of its history, in terms of outsider awareness of this country, mm-hmm. and in terms of the crops it grows and the dollars it can wield? I, I mean, I think that's a great question, and, and that um, my, own, my own relationship with Namibia was that I did live there in, in the early 90s, roughly about the same time as the book takes place. The book isn't me, and I've answered that question a lot lately, but, um, but Kaplant certainly has certain characteristics that I can relate to. Um, and one is, is going to a place and not knowing the history of it. Um, and when I first went to Namibia um, personally, I was at- assigned the task of teaching English, and I was also assigned the task of teaching history. And this was right after independence, and the history books literally hadn't been written. <laughs> um, so the history book that I had to teach the seventh grade was written by apartheid, uh, Bantu education uh, people who had created a, an education system that was, um, which was completely discriminatory and, and horrifically so. So... Um, so I had to sort of wing it in terms of learning the history, and all I did was is ask questions of the people who were there and say, you know, how would you do this? How would you start teaching history in a more honest way? And I remember that a lot when I was writing the book, is that I, I remember what that was like to sort of gather the history of a country, not through books, but through stories that people told me. This gathering of history and listening to different voices comes through in the narrative. Your, your book, for people who have not read it, mm-hmm. is structured so that no chapter is more than, let's say, three pages long right. and very episodic in nature. Uh, there's no real distinct plot, but rather a series of voices. Uh, and from those voices, we come to know this farm called Goas and this country. And and that the structure of the book, it took me, this book took me quite a number of years to write, and I, I I, I knew I wanted to write about this place, but I really had a lot of trouble coming up with the with how to move a, a book uh, like this. And what I came up with after many years of trial and error, where I, I started to remember the, my own days in Namibia and how they how they 
you know, they would sort of rise and fall on the stories and the jokes and the lies that we would tell each other out in the veld because there wasn't much else to do. There was no TV. There was, <laughs> there was, you know, we had we we'd gone through every book in the library. We basically had each other, um, you know. And I was a, I was definitely an outsider. But after two weeks in a very isolated place, um, you become less of an outsider. Uh, and I think I tried to portray that in the book as the people, all of these people at this place are sort of in exile. Um, and and the farm, this particular farm, is not a village in the in the African countryside. It's uh, very much a place that only is a boarding school, so people wouldn't normally be there. So everybody there is sort of an outsider. Give us a little bit of the history of it. I mean, you populate the the story, uh, the second coming of Malveva, uh, Chicago, with a lot of historical documents and different characters mm-hmm. that exist right. uh, to give us context. But give us that context in person now. Well, I mean, Namibia, as you say, you know, it's not a place that people know a, a ton about. Um, and I, I, after living there, I got very interested in the history of, of the country because it's fascinating. Namibia is, um, was, was twice colonized, first by the Germans, and then um, after World War I, it was taken over by, by South Africa as part of a mandate through the League of Nations. Um, consequently, uh, of course, the League of Nations became the United Nations, and that mandate was taken away um, through a series of, of legal legal maneuvers and General Assembly uh, resolutions and ICJ decisions and things like that. But South Africa did not leave, and so the War um, of Independence uh, happened um, roughly in the late '60s and continued through the through the late '80s. Um, so that was the context I was working with: is that is that you know, you had a country that was colonized by Germany and then held on by South Africa. And so, you know, and I, I was sort of working with that because because they'd always lived under those kind of conditions. And yet, you know, and people, people, but even in spite of that, people get married, people get divorced, people fall in love, people get jobs, they get fired, they do all sorts of things. I mean, you can't, I think you can't write just about colonialism as if people are not living their lives in spite of the degradations that are put upon them. You know, so they still have to raise their family. They still have sure. to put food on the yeah, table. Yeah, absolutely. And I think sometimes we forget that when we talk about politics. In a, you know, if we remove it from a personal sense, so you, you really distill the characters down to their essence here, and you you give them these little moments. I mean, they have a conversation together over the the graveyard of the Boers, um, right? And they, you know, they try as you read in your opening introduction, talking about the fence and how you build something out of nothing. Mm-hmm. These exiled teachers and these children who are lucky because their childhood is prolonged. I wonder um, what your sense was of this farm in the greater context of the country. Is is this an anomaly and completely different from where the country is headed? Is progress uh, something that this farm can have? Um, this farm is a bit of an anomaly in the sense of it's in, an, it's in a part of the country. Namibia is very sparsely populated. Um, however, in the northern swath of the country, it's actually pretty densely populated. So so this this book takes place in a part of the country that is, you know, has very few people around. Um, but Namibia is other places too. So I, I wouldn't um, say that this, that this book is really about Namibia. It's more about a small place that happens to be within this big country of Namibia. Um, if I was to write, let's say, a, a book that was set in um, Oshikati, which is a vibrant uh, city in the north, um, it would be completely different. You know, there'd be totally different 
kind of energy um, than than this particular place, which was very slow and languid and and more more uh, directly related to my own personal experience. Um, but you know, it, I think if you're writing a book for over ten years, it becomes a more of a myth than a reality, <laughs> if you know what I mean. <laughs> I do, and I and it seems to me that the way that you sidestep this idea of um, you're a white Western writer, you went to Iowa, mm-hmm. um, here you are writing about Africa. You could very well be um, promulgating another idea of colonialism by sure. engaging in this country, and yet you keep the story to such a small level to a particular place, and and as a cultural reference, your own experience. You sidestep all of those issues and the political uh, firestorm that could ensue. Sure. And you know, and I'm conscious of that. I mean, that's it's a it's a reality. I think when you're writing about any anybody or any place, there's a danger in you know recolonizing or repatronizing all sorts of isms <laughs> you could run into. Um, but I think once you sort of worry about character and and not um, and not seeing people as part of a sociological framework <laughs> you you lose that so fast I mean you, you know uh, and so I think I mean even my first book was set uh, among people that I know better Jewish families in Fall River Massachusetts but in a sense you know even though I know that better I'm still trying to imagine what it might have been like in 1945 in in, in Massachusetts and in, in southeastern Massachusetts in a town that's going way downhill for like Fall River was where my mother is from so I, I think any time I, I do my best to just worry about character, I guess, is my And your characters shine through. Looking at uh, Malava, she is somebody who is tired of having everything projected upon her, much like uh, this small country has mm-hmm. had things projected upon it. She says, stop gazing at me. All of these men are lonely and longing. And imagine her to be something very different from she is. Right. And she calls Larry to task for this. <laughs> and in a way, calls every reader to task for what we might do to Africa. I think she does, and, and and she's not somebody who's going to let you in just because you are curious or just because you are asking the right questions and being polite and all those things. And you know, she what she went through in 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 being a woman soldier is something she doesn't necessarily want to celebrate. She talks about it, she alludes to it, but she's she's a bit secretive, as as I think a lot of people might be had they had they actually lived through something. Um, those of us who haven't have to invent. Uh, Mavla doesn't need to invent much because she lived. She lived so much, and and uh, and then finds herself teaching kindergarten after being a guerrilla fighter. So that's a and that's with a, a child of, and with a child. Oh. <laughs> yeah, Mavla is someone who uh, Larry, of course, dreams about, as do most people on the farm. Mm-hmm. And he does establish a rapport with her for a while. They become intimates and discuss the ways of their life, both of them trying to leave behind what each thinks the other one is. Uh-huh. How did you get beyond what you imagine these people to be and who they really are with these little moments, these moments where we don't get much discussed about their background, their family history, their upbringing? They just get to talk about the weather and the cows. Right. <laughs> the weather and the cows go a long way. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a secret affair, this, mm-hmm. this relationship between Kaplansky and Mavala. So, and because it's such a small place and it's a secret affair, uh, there's very little time. I mean, you'd think that they could just go out into the veld and, and, and disappear. But the fact is there's, there's, it's a school, so there's boys around. You can't, it's a privacy issue. So what they end up doing is having to um, meet during siesta, which is, which is after lunch, obviously. You all know that. It's after lunch. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and 
they have about an hour when most people are on the farm are definitely in their beds, and that's the safest time. So they don't have much time to have a whole, you know, chapters and chapters worth of their relationship. It's really, it is fast because they have to be back in an hour. And and also, uh, Mavel has a baby, and Tomo is um, very, like all babies, he needs attention. And so... They don't have much time either, <laughs> um, because of the because of the kid. And in fact, Tomo is um, sort of a beast among, among <laughs> yeah, most of the a teachers. A wonderful beast. Yeah, <laughs> he's, he's not easily controlled. <laughs> I think he's very wild and and assertive, yeah. and that is what Mavala seems to enjoy most in him. Right, and Mavala loves Tomo very much because of his, you know, his sort of his energy. And I mean, Tomo, you know, is a very young child, but is definitely somebody who is a presence on this farm in ways that I think um, only a two to three-year-old could be. Tomo's energy uh, is, I think, the energy of this novel as well. There's a lot of humor. Um, there's a lot of small moments that we get to reflect on, much bigger things. And it's not at all, as I've said before, heavy-handed in the colonialism portrayal or apartheid. Talk about this blending of humor and real storytelling that seems to be um, a kind of a cultural step zone in this place, in this farm. Thanks. I, I, in, in trying to think about my own experience there, and I remembered we laughed a ton, you know, and, and, and you know, we laughed when, when, when there was no cold water, you know, and, and you had to drink water that was, you know, 65 degrees or whatever. And, I, and so I just remember it, it being, I mean, it was not an easy place to live, and, and I was a visitor. I was not somebody who is still there, and, and I have friends that are still there, and that's not easy. Um, but I do remember that, that, that we... We spent much of our time making each other laugh, and, and that, that's what I tried to instill in the book. And the other thing, the important thing, is, is that in, in writing it and reading um, books by African writers, which I read a ton of, I noticed something, and that was that um, they were funny. Uh, not all of them, <clears throat> but, I mean, even when you're writing about something horrible, um, there's a great uh, South African writer who... He's no longer with us, unfortunately, but his name is Richard Rive, and he wrote a book called um, Buckingham Palace District 6, which is about the apartheid government destroying a multi, very diverse neighborhood outside of Cape Town where tons of different ethnicities lived, and they bulldozed it and, and built a suburban uh, white enclave. But the book, which is about this horrific event, is hilarious. <laughs> Um, because of the characters that Rive writes about, and that was very instrumental. And I and I other South African writers like Can Themba and just people that um, that I adore. And I I adore James Kotsia and and Nadine Gordimer too. But they're not always the funniest writers. And I I noticed in 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 sort of reading um, books by by certain um, South African writers in particular that humor was very important. And I I thought um, that was more similar to the experience that I had had. It makes us all be able to understand the real human quality of these people living their lives in the context of war and other oppression. Definitely. Um, and that doesn't mean that absolutely horrific things don't happen, and those things aren't funny um, at all, and the history of Namibia is not funny. Um, but uh, that said, um, I think you have to, again, like you said, like the day-to-day reality of living, um, you have to laugh. So, Peter Orner, you were saying that this book took you 10 years to write. So you yeah. spent time in Namibia. You came back mm-hmm. and started to distill. What was your experience there? Why did you set out to write this book? Was it something you wanted to honor uh, your friends and your time there? Or was it something you just couldn't get out of your blood? 
It was both, I think. Um, it was definitely something I couldn't get out of my blood, and, and I, I had met so many wonderful people there, and I, I wanted to sort of keep them in, in my mind. I've since gone back to visit and, and research. I went back f- about four or five times in researching the book over the course of, of like I say, 10 years. Um, so, you know, I, I, it's a place that I love and a place I continue to, you know, be, have a strong relationship with. For yeah. those of us who are listeners who are also writers, I'm hoping you can talk more about the structure of the book. Mm-hmm. Understandably, there's a reason why it took you 10 years. There seems to be very little thread between each story, and you had to place each sort of historical document <laughs> and and note about the cows and the rainstorms um, in a proper place and time. Was that something you just felt your way through? I, I have a big wall over my desk, and I, I, um, I, I put up different days different sections of the book and I I just started to sort of watch it watch it grow over over the years and I started to realize that perhaps it wasn't a traditional novel um, but it was a novel in the sense of um, there's movement uh, it's just a different sort of movement um, and it's it's like living in the desert on a day-to-day basis that's what I was trying to capture um, but that took me like I said a long time to sort of reach. But I also think that there's a lot of pressure to write a novel that seems to do certain things. What are those things? Well, have have certain plot points or things like that. I mean, I, I don't read these books where they tell you how to do this stuff. But, you know, but in class, I mean, people are, you know, there's classes on novel writing. And, and I teach in the MFA program at San Francisco State. And I probably have said some of these things myself. Violate them all is what I've learned is that, <laughs> um, you know, and the, the books I love the most are ones that you cannot categorize and generally um, do things that surprise you on, on, on so many levels. And, but like I said, I mean, you were talking about it comes down to character. And I think to me, the books I love most are the books that I end up knowing the people I've read about. Not that I've necessarily gone from point, plot point A to plot point B. The people stay with you, not what they've done and accomplished. Right. And in this case, they, didn't, they don't accomplish much. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering about um, the sense that, you know, th- there's one other woman who's on the farm. Mm-hmm. She's the principal's wife, and she's this, the sister-in-law, mm-hmm. uh, Maleva. Um, yeah. Talk about her because she's interesting. She is someone who does not subscribe to the idea of humor as a way and a means to get through the day. And she provides this interesting contrast as being the only really adult woman who we see in this work. Right. Um, Antoinette. Oh, Antoinette, yes. Antoinette, um, like a lot of older women everywhere, uh, I don't know how this is sounding, um, but my experience in in Namibia and, and also everywhere I've been <laughs> is that is that is that certain women hold families together, hold communities together, simply on raw strength. And uh, Antoinette is is roughly based on 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 someone I knew in Namibia, who you know who could overcome every every bit of adversity that she faced by just simply sort of facing it and. So in this book, I mean, Antoine is married to Obadiah, who's a dreamer. Very much, I, I relate most, mostly, uh, very much to Obadiah personally. A dreamer and a drinker. A dreamer and a drinker, and and yeah, and yet you know he he's the one who talks about history, and he he he's constantly being depressed about the things he reads in the newspaper, and um, he, you know, and yet his wife is the one that's feeding the boys and is is keeping everybody in line and you know morally i mean Antoinette is certainly her morals are 
are, are, are she has a higher standard of morality than anyone else in the book, certainly than Kaplansk in, in a lot of ways, and, and, and Mavla too. But, but she's very much the character that um, this farm needs in order to actually survive because you can't live on stories. <laughs> you can live only on porridge, and that's what she provides to um, not just the boys, but she also feeds the teachers. And yet you relate most to the dreamer. Sure, <laughs> yeah. I guess it's my vocation. Um, but he, Obadiah, spends much of his time sitting in his blue chair in his house at night and reading history. Uh, and he becomes depressed about things that happened 150 years ago. And, and I think we need those people, too. I mean, we need Antoinette to get through the day, but I also think we need, a, we need Obadiah also. And Obadiah really shares a lot of this history with Larry. It's, and he also wants to learn about Cincinnati, Ohio. I mean, he is a man who wants to know the world, at least the history we have in that world, and at least enough that can be filled up in a book. <coughs> Absolutely. Excuse me. He, um, Obadiah, I mean, he knows more about... For example, uh, he asks uh, Kaplansk about um, about the great Roman general Cincinnatus, uh, who Cincinnati is, uh, the city of Cincinnati is named after. Kaplansk had no idea that there was anybody called the great Roman emperor Cincinnatus. And that, and you know, Obadiah does. And because Obadiah is a, a well-educated, uh, curious person, and I, those are people are rare in the world, I think, and certainly... Um, he puts Kaplansk to shame by knowing more about his own. Uh, Kaplansk is Jewish. Obadiah knows more about Judaism than, than Kaplansk does. Um, he's sort of, you know, he's a, he's a Renaissance man. The problem is, is like, he's a, you know, he's, he drinks too much and he, you know, he's not perfect. Um, so. so he needs his counterpoint. <laughs> right, exactly. And, and Antoinette certainly provides that. So this worldly curiosity that you seem to share with mm-hmm. him, does writing allow you a vehicle for which to use that? I mean, here you are. You said you uh, teach at the MFA program at San Francisco State University. We also know um, from reading your biography that you are a lawyer uh, and still do some voluntary work. You haven't given up entirely. Mm-hmm. How do you find that um, writing gives you or feeds you in a way that maybe, um, you know, arguing a case doesn't? Um, definitely. I, I, um... Actually, when I lived in Santa Cruz, I was teaching in the legal studies program at, at, at UCSC. Good um, man. Up the hill. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so I've taught law, but I, I haven't... Um, when I started to publish and, and my first book came out, um, it was time to devote more time, and I, and I was able to do that. I was lucky. You know, a lot of, there's a lot of writers out there that don't have that luxury and have to write you know, between 6 and 8 in the morning before they go to work, and um, I've done that myself, and that I... Have much respect for that kind of um, discipline because that's what writing takes. But, but it does allow me to fulfill certain curiosities. I mean, I could I could spend many many years researching the arcane details of Namibian history, which fascinates me and, and represents the history of a lot of places, colonialism and otherwise. So, um, so yes, it it does actually kind of fuel my interest in strange details and and small um, small bits of of historical truth or untruth, as the case may be. And yet you don't see yourself as a writer who must be an activist. I mean, clearly this book is at first and foremost about character mm-hmm. and people, just as life is. Right, exactly. And I think that goes further sometimes. And I mean, that's there. there's a time for activism, and I, I, um, I do that in my personal life. Um, but when I'm writing, I find that um, activism doesn't have its 
quite a place in creating a story because it doesn't surprise you. If you know where you stand and you know where someone stands, I think you get um, less out of a novel than you do in, when a novel is being more true to the, our sort of conflicting natures. And we come to see ourselves in the other through a good novel as well. Yeah, we, I hope, anyway. Yeah. Peter Orner, author of The Second Coming of Malava, Chicago. Thank you so much for joining me Thank here you, today. Jen. Thank you very much. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.